smart enough to vote for it. I wonder if they're waiting for somebody else to do it.
at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Now that bit's talking about the three feasts, and then the next bit, which uh, in my Bible there's not a gap before, which would be helpful, is actually summing up those three. And it says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And we'll leave the, we'll leave the reading just at that verse. Three feasts that the Jewish people were to observe. Feast of, feast of the Passover, otherwise known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Weeks which got another name later we'll come to, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. Now there were other feasts, and these feasts are mentioned at other, uh, other times and places too. The uh, first one is the Passover, which of course was mentioned, which was instituted in Exodus <coughs> in chapter 12, while people were still in Egypt. And then all three feasts, I mentioned in Leviticus and in Numbers. In uh, Leviticus it sort of sets them out and in Numbers it gives the details of the sacrifices to be made. And then they're brought together in Deuteronomy. Now in Numbers and in Leviticus there are other feasts mentioned, in particular the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. But these three in Deuteronomy are picked out by the work of the Spirit of God. For he directed Moses to speak of them and to write of them. Deuteronomy, as many of you will know, was Moses repeating the law to the people of Israel at the very end of his life. He's bringing together what the Holy Spirit has taught him are, are the things that are so important for them to remember. Because he knows when he leaves, others will come. And others who come uh, will perhaps not leave like he has. The Apostle Paul had the same problem. He said, uh, I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you. Moses very much felt the same. And he wanted to give to these people, he wanted to give to them uh, something to remember. He did, he gave them five books altogether, but uh, in, in his last speech in Deuteronomy, he wanted to give them so much to remember. And he doesn't bring many new things here. But he does bring one new thing. That's in verse 16. It says, three times a year all your men must appear before the Lord at the place he will choose. And he lists the three times. So they were to get together three times every year. So they weren't to have these feasts in their own towns once God had established <coughs> Uh, Hebron and uh, for much longer Jerusalem as the place where he put his name they were to go there so these three are singled out as times when the whole nation or at least all the men from the nation uh, were to come together and they would come together as that very last 
verse tells us, uh, not empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. No one is to come empty-handed. Now, the Old Testament uh, is a shadow, Colossians tells us, all these things are a shadow of what is to come. The reality is in Christ. All these things are a shadow. And so as we look at these things, we can see, if we look at the New Testament, how they came out in reality. And we're going to look at them one at a time. And the first one, of course, is the Feast of Passover. 1 Corinthians 5 says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And so we, we don't need a lot of intuition to work out what the reality in the New Testament of the shadow of the Passover was from the Old Testament. We don't need any imagination. We don't need to work it out how to bring it forward. We can do that easily. Because the Bible tells us. The Bible is actually, uh, is actually its own <coughs> greatest interpreter. If you're trying, trying to work out what something means, it probably tells you somewhere else in the Bible. But sometimes you have to ask somebody else where to find it. But it tells us in the New Testament that Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So the Passover in the Old Testament is replaced by the death of Christ upon the cross in the New Testament. And the Passover in the Old Testament, when it was first done in Egypt, enabled them to escape, first of all, God's punish punishment and sin. It also gave them the freedom to escape from Egypt. Egypt is a picture of this world in which we live and its evil ways. And that comes from the death of Christ, his death and resurrection. I've been thinking very much uh, with the groups I'm with over the last uh, few weeks about those words in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, I preach to you what I received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and he rose again. That's the reality that comes from the shadow, which is the Passover. Now sometimes when you see a shadow, you can work out what is the shadow of. You go around the corner of a building and a shadow appears. Depending on how high or low the sun is, you can get things in the wrong proportion, can't you, you know? I remember a lovely story about someone who let their dog off the lead in the park and off it went to chase some dog in the distance. But as it got nearer the dog in the distance, it realised this dog was a lot further away than it thought. And a lot larger than the first dog just let off thought. As it got nearer, he decided to slow down. And when he realised how huge this monster was, he turned happily to his 
older. You know, and we can have the same about shadows. We don't always understand how big or small the thing coming round the corner is. Uh, you remember those things being on the screen? It's a bit more difficult now, but let's write up there, you know. You can do things like rabbits and things by your fingers on the screen and <coughs> trying to give people what's going on. So the first one, the Passover, is uh, represent, represents in the New Testament the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then in the second one, it's the Feast of Weeks. And uh, they had seven weeks, which if my math is correct, is 49 days, but they came at the first and the last, which gave them 50 days, which gives us Pentecost. And when we go to uh, Acts in chapter 1, we read this, it, when the day of Pentecost came, or an old translation said, when the day of Pentecost fully came, the disciples were together, and that was the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church and the formation of the church. It's a lovely event. It's a lovely event. And we could speak on that, but not today. But also here in, uh, in Deuteronomy, they're bringing things that they have uh, taken because it's their feast of first fruits. They haven't got a lot. They're just beginning. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 16 says, Count seven weeks on from the day you begin to put the signal into the standing corn, and then bring a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Now, this isn't to be their harvest. This was just a little way into their harvest. The main harvest was to come later with the Feast of Tabernacles. But at this time, they're going to offer to God a first fruit. And at the day of Pentecost, there were those, those many, those 3,000 who were saved, were the first fruit to God. Now, Jesus Christ himself was a first fruit as well, or the first fruit. But these were first fruits as a result of his death and resurrection. Jesus said, Unless a corn of wheat falls, out, falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so on the day of Pentecost, we see that there were there, uh, that there were those who gave their hearts and lives to Jesus in heaven now, and they are the first fruits that God is bringing to himself. There will be others, but this is the sample of where this started. This is where we're going from. This is the sort you're going to see more of later. So that's the week of, uh, sorry, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. So we've had the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. We've had the uh, Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now we move on to the third one, the Feast of Tabernacles.
Now, I will suggest to you that this one hasn't yet taken place. I believe that this is the return of Christ. Now, there are lots of different views on the order of things, uh, of things to come. And among, cho uh, among children of God that really believe and study the Bible, and even they haven't agreed on it all. So I want to rest assured, uh, leave you rest assured, that I'm not going to try and sort it out in the 20 minutes that remains this morning. I'll let you do that on another day. But I think most of you would agree that there will come a time when the end of Christian service will come to an end. When those who are to be gathered into the church will have been gathered into the church. And it will be in that sense the end of that harvest. Now God has a work to do I believe after that. But there will come a time when the end of the harvest that we're involved in now in bringing people to Jesus will come to an end. You see, here it says, uh, in, in uh, chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, verse 13, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your winepress. You've done it now. And it says that your joy will be complete. Now, with the, if you look at this chapter, uh, when you look at the Passover, it says nothing about joy. Quite a few children have asked me uh, over the last few days, or a few weeks, why do we call it Good Friday when Jesus died? But it wasn't good for him, but it was good for us. Okay, that's what I normally say to them. I think it's a slightly more complicated historical answer, but you see, there wasn't a lot of joy for Jesus when Jesus died, and the people around the cross, they didn't enjoy it much either. The joy was to come later. But in the Feast of Weeks, in verse 11, it says, Rejoice before the Lord your God. And when the day of Pentecost came, there was rejoicing. And that was lovely. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, it didn't just say rejoice. It says, your joy will be complete. There's a completion to joy that will come when Jesus returns and the end of this harvest comes. There's another thing about this uh, particular recording of these things. In Leviticus and Numbers, it gives us times of the year, or then times of the year, when the Feast of Tabernacles was to take place. But in Deuteronomy, when it's bringing these three together, there's no time given for the Feast of Tabernacles, excepting to say when the harvest is finished. And we're not told when Jesus will return. In fact, he made it very clear to his disciples that he wasn't going to tell them. And that was really, in a way, none of their business. They would get on and get the work done. Someone once said that if you want to try and uh, put things in the Bible that speak of the future and relate them to people living today, you shouldn't do it until 
because you're well into your seventh bit, or perhaps even eighth bit. And the reason is that so many people have done it over the years and got it wrong. But if you wait till you're that sort of age before you start doing it, then by the time they've realised that you got it wrong, your people that all that can't get their own back on you. <laughs> I think that's a very sensible thing. <laughs> But he is coming. And the, the, uh, the opportunity for service will end. Peter wrote in his first epistle, he says, the end of all things is at hand. I used to go to a church many, many years ago and I saw a photograph of the, uh, the inside of the church some years before I was there. They had a clock on the wall in particular over there. And I'd, they put a, they'd text everywhere. And the text ran across and it said, Time is short. I'm not sure whether that's meant to be for the speaker or president, <laughs> I'm not too sure. Uh, but it did say time is short, and, and the day is coming when the opportunity of service will end. The end of all things is near. I remember reading an article some years ago and it mentioned some of the things that will come to an end when Jesus returns. And the opportunity for witness and service as we know it now. There may well be other opportunities for service that we don't know anything about at the moment. We're not too sure what God has got in store for us, except to know that they're good things. They're good things. But the opportunity for service down here will end. The harvest will be complete. But there's this little bit stuck on the end. That's a little bit of a worry to me. The men were to come three times a year to appear before the Lord. But it goes on to say, and this is really the crux of my thought this morning, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. go back to the cross and Passover, <coughs> there were those there who brought what they could. There were those like Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene who brought their love and affection to Jesus. And that was their gift to him. There were those like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who brought what they could. They were both wealthy men. Joseph donated his food. Nicodemus gave uh, the ointment and it wasn't a little jar of bottle. If you ever read down the bottom of the Bible at the end of John it says it was about 75 pounds weight. You ever looked at uh, your jars, whatever it is you've got on it, or your wife's got on the dressing table? Look at it when it's empty and see how thick the glass is and how small the little hole in the middle is. Then start looking at what's inside and not what the whole thing is and see how little you've got and remember that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds 
say, well, thank you Lord for saving me. I didn't quite get mad that he was doing anything about it afterwards, but I'm really grateful and really thankful. Is that all we're going to bring? Paul uh, talks about uh, the crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. There's a number of crowns for the believer in the Bible. And Paul talks about the crown of rejoicing. He says to the people in his letter, "Who? what will be my crown of rejoicing at the day when I meet Jesus? going to be you. It's going to be you. He says, I'm going to say to the Lord, look, Lord, those you've given me, 
they're here with me, isn't that lovely, Lord? And I wonder if the dead don't see you. If not, friend, they'll be my friends. But who are you going to present to the Lord? And what are you going to present to the Lord? Evangelism is something which is very dear to my heart. And I don't particularly mean preaching. Preaching is a very little part of it. Being is a much bigger part than preaching. Being is a much bigger part than, than preaching. And uh, I, I work in a school, as most of you know, and what we can really achieve among children, whether it's for learning or whether it's for uh, evangelism, is very much connected with the relationship that we can build up with them. And it is the same for our friends and neighbours we are dependent upon our relationship built with them so that we can actually win them for Jesus. But it may be that evangelism isn't, isn't the main thing that you're involved in, though all of us are witnesses. You say, I don't want to be a witness. <coughs> if you're part of God's family, you are a witness. You don't have any choice about it. You might be a good witness, you might be a bad witness, but you're a witness because people know you're a Christian and therefore they look at you and make their own judgment. You might not say anything, but they're going to make a judgment. So you're all witness. But it may be your forte is not evangelism in that sense, it's to help others. At the burning bush, God said to Moses at one point, when, when Moses was fighting to get out of the work, he says to him, what is in your hand? Staff. God showed him how to use it. And once the staff was thrown down and picked up again, remember it became a servant when it was served, when it was down, it became a, a staff, a walking stick in his hand. As Moses left the burning bush, it says he had the staff of God in his hand. Not Moses' staff. Now become the staff of God. I wonder what you've got. Some of you've got a car. And you can use it to witness to God and to bless other people. Yeah? With a car. You can take somebody to a hospital. You can help them out in, in whatever way. Some of you have got a kettle. But most of you have got a kettle. I'm perceptive. <laughs> there was a boy at school, and he was—we uh, were—he was working on the um, on the sort of communion service services for different churches. He copied it down wrong. He said, "The Roman Catholics have a mess." He should have said mass. So I said to him, "It's talking about the Catholic communion communion service, not your bedroom." The boy was about twelve. He looked for a minute, he looked at me and said, Sir, how did you know that my bedroom was a mess? <laughs> I said, I know these things. I know these things. It's good for my get out of here. Most of you will have kept it, it can be used to make a cup of tea. Some of you can bake cakes and give it to somebody who's been set down down the road. It's a bit of encouragement. What have you got in your hand? What do you have? A hand. 
when he sees him? Are you going to appear before him empty-handed? Or are you going to have something to say, Lord, this is what I bought for you? There's lots of parables about it in the New Testament. You know them well, the parable of the talents and so on. But I want to think about it a slightly different way. In the uh, last book of the Bible, it talks about those who cast their crowns before the flood. I wonder what that means, really. And I think what it means is this. That we do something for God, and we win something for God, and it becomes a crown. Something beyond our salvation. Something to make it lovely. When we get there, we say, uh, God says to you, do you see this person? Yes. Well, they were saved by somebody in your Bible class. Wow. See that person over there? You know those leaders you passed on? They were given one of those. You say, wow. This is my crown. Says God, and God says, yes. And what do we do? What will we do? I think we'll simply say, Lord, it wasn't my work. It was your work. And I believe that's what it means when it says they cast their crowns before the throne. They return them back to God and say, it wasn't ours, it's yours. But how lovely to have something to cast back before the throne. And not have nothing. Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians tells us that we should all appear, that all the believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not the great white throne. That's not where God's looking at people's sins. It's looking at what people have done to him since they became Christians. And uh, in the first letter of Corinthians, Paul writes about building. You can only build on one foundation, that is Jesus. But it's what you build with, whether it's gold and silver and precious stones, or whether it's in wood, hay and stubble. What we're building, that is worth something to God. I just want to read these verse, that verse to finish with, and I'm done. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way of the Lord your God has blessed. Father, we thank you for these lovely pictures you've given us in the Old Testament and the uh, answers you've given us to us in the New Testament about them. Father, we do pray that we might learn from what you're te- teaching us. We pray that we might remember that Jesus is to return. Pray that we might be ready that each person in this room might know Jesus as Lord and Savior ready for that day when he will return. But Father, we pray more than that. We pray that we'll be ready in every way and we won't be like those 
who are ashamed before you at his coming. Father, help us to really look to you, to know what you would have us do. For your name's